if you go out looking for the worst in the world or in anything, you know what, you're going to find it. But if you go out and look for what's the best or what's beautiful, you're going to find that. It's not very often I make a direct connection between food and motorcycles. I mean, of course, we eat when we're out riding. You know, if we go camping, we make our food. Today, we're going to make that connection, food and motorcycles. It's to be about the beautiful world, the beautiful people, and the beautiful food that I experienced on this journey. And we're also going to talk about what a world motorcycle trip has to do with finding yourself at a crossroad or a fork in your life. And when you're riding through Colombia, they tell me, don't stop ride straight through why you should never ever stop i stop in an area where they told you not to before i know it i am flanked by two guys dressed in uh, jungle fatigues carrying an ak-47 i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio we got a good one for you today and then he asked me the questions that most travelers get except he's using the point of his gun for punctuation and pointing it at me where are you from where are you going and where'd you get the motorcycle This is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. The man is Alan Carl. He did a three-year ride around the world and ended up writing a book called Forks, a quest for culture, cuisine, and connection. Today we're speaking with Alan Carl, who is the author of Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio, Carl. Great to be here, Jim. You spent three years riding around the world on your BMW F650GS. You ultimately wrote a book called Forks, which is probably as much about local cuisine as it is about motorcycle adventure. And before we talk about the trip, give us a description of what Alan Carl's life was like before this trip, before this whole project started. Yeah, I lived here in Southern California where we have great weather and, uh, you know, the world is your oyster here. I was working in a, a marketing communications, you know, advertising agency, and I was married and doing what we all do, pursuing that career and at the same time trying to uh, raise a family. Um, but then one day I woke up, Jim, and realized that this career, this work in the advertising agency was unfulfilling and not challenging anymore after some 15 years. And my marriage began unraveling. Uh, so soon I was out of a job. I had quit. And then I was divorced, so I was alone. And uh, those were uh, big changes and, and in many ways uh, opened up new forks for me and in the road of what do I do now. So you're really at a crossroads, I mean, for everything there, career, family, the whole bit. What is it about motorcycling that inspired you to take this trip? Or, or should I say, was motorcycling in your background before this? Yeah, I, you know, 
have always uh, loved motorcycling. I mean, there is a photograph at the very back page of the book of me, probably I'm um, four or five years old, sitting on you know my dad's old uh, Honda. Uh, one, you know, 125, uh, probably a 1965 motorcycle. I still haven't really gotten the exact model number of that. So, so in my in my dreams were always motorcycles. Although I didn't get my first motorcycle uh, until my uh, early 20s, and uh, but my passions were always uh, certainly writing. I had been blogging uh, before people knew what the word was, and I've always had written stories. And photography. I mean, my earliest memories of beyond that motorcycle were always with the camera in my hand and travel. You know, I just got bitten by that bug early on. So when I did find myself at those crossroads, I thought, wow, I could do what most people do is scramble and try to get a job, maybe uh, start hitting the online dating services and looking for a new girlfriend or, you know, these kinds of things. And I thought, no, this is an opportunity for me to kind of unleash my passions and follow my dream. And that was always to travel the world. Now, I, I must say, I didn't always think about riding a motorcycle around the world. Although I always, I had a motorcycle uh, ever since I was probably 21. Um, and, you know, my, my initial thought, I had always traveled and to places and rented motorcycles in some cases and other cases just you know rented cars and you know did that kind of touring but i, I come across reading uh, one of your fellow canadians books uh by neil pert um ghost rider at the uh, at 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 the time of uh just about this time i think the book had been out a couple years and you know Although his changes, Neil's changes, if anyone's read that book, you know, he found himself at, at a crossroads very much a, a rock star with what you would think would be everything. He lost his daughter and his wife in the same year. So my changes were nothing compared to his. But I read that book and found uh, and, and how he healed after those terrible, um, you know, incidents in his life was by getting on his motorcycle and riding. And he went all the way into Mexico and Central America. And I. I thought, wow, I could do that. And so all of a sudden, the possibilities opened up for me, and I realized I can do this on my motorcycle. What were you hoping to find there or accomplish with your trip to begin with? Because you didn't set out to write a book. No, I never set out. You know, I, I knew I'd blog because I was really into writing, and I loved photography, and I knew this was a uh, an outlet for me to, to express myself creatively. And one of the things, I've always been a very open person, open to new things, open to experiences, open to different kinds of food, and open to culture and places. This is post-9-11. You know, this is in 2000. Uh, when I started planning this trip was in 2003 and 2004, and I was getting sick of hearing like, oh, everybody hates Americans, first of all. And, you know, the world is a dangerous place. You know, let's cocoon ourselves up in our homes and, you know, buy duct tape and sheeting and things like that. You know, back then when the Homeland Security was suggesting, you know, had these alerts that would come out. I mean, they were using those alerts up until maybe four or five years ago. And that would put the fear in anyone. So I thought, really, I'm going to go and prove that number one, the world is a safe, friendly place, and number two, people are hospitable, especially to Americans. What made you think it was a safe and hospitable place, though? I mean, all the all the feed that you're getting is is that everything's scary. What gives you the insight? 
You know, I really believe it comes down to attitude and it, it, it just was a gut feeling. I can't say that I had any data that told me that other than past experience in traveling. You know, I'd traveled a lot extensively and, uh, but inside me, I, I knew that if you, if you go out looking for the worst in the world or in anything, you know what, you're going to find it. But if you go out and look for what's the best or what's beautiful, you're going to find that. So I set out to find what's good and what was right with the world as opposed to what was wrong or bad. So for comparison, just to jump right ahead to now, looking back, in what ways have you changed as a person and how has your life changed because of the trip and because of the book? Well, I, I no longer uh, you know, live in a house I own. I rent. I realized that, you know, those things that I held on to so close, those physical things, were the things I needed to let go of first. Um, you know, I like nice things. I lived a, a good life and, you know, had a decent income. But I realized I, I don't need as much money and I don't need things. The biggest change is how much more I value experiences than I do possessions. I don't need a new car every couple of years, even a new motorcycle. I still have that F-650 and it's pushing 90,000 miles. Um, I like all those things. And whenever I have the opportunity to try, uh, try ride a new motorcycle or drive a friend's new high-tech car, that that's fine. But the only thing I, I, I think physically that is important to me is uh, is perhaps my camera and my laptop computer so that I have the ability to capture those experiences. And then not because I just want to, you know, hoard and, you know, nest up a bunch of uh, photographs, but to share. And, uh, and as you look through forks, I think you'll find great landscape photographs and people love those, but the ones that are most endearing to me are those of people and the pictures of people where you can tell for sure I had to have a connection. I had to get them to, um, trust me and let me take their picture and you'll see how many smiles there there are just there and there is that thing jim and it may be cliche or old school but i i, I truly hold to the conviction that your your best and most important uh weapon people ask me what well, did you bring any weapons on this trip you know what, what was your knife what was your gun you know what kind of toys did you have and i, I didn't bring any of that and i said the most important weapon that you can bring is one that doesn't cost anything. It doesn't need a user manual to tell you how to use it. And it's a smile, you know? It's how you could disarm almost any, and I say almost any, situation by being friendly, smiling, and coming back to that thing that I said I, I, I find is the core belief I have, and that is being open. So long way around that, that answer there, but, uh, but that, that's where I find the changes in my life have taken me. You mentioned uh, fulfillment. I know you mentioned it in your book, and I think it to me it, it's really the uh, hinging word. It's the word that, that connects everything that you've experienced in your life through this change, and that's the idea that you weren't fulfilled in your previous life. And now, I mean, you can even hear it in your voice. This is something that you're passionate about. It's not something that's making you necessarily a millionaire. As you say, you're renting now as opposed to owning your house, but it's fulfillment, and that's really the big thing that's uh, different in your life, isn't it, now? It truly is. I, I am doing what I love to do. I am sharing these great stories of connecting with people. I have put together this book that 
is less about me and my motorcycle trip than it is about the people that I met and their culture and their food. And that was a huge thing. So th- th- to me, that and, and, and this summer, uh, we, we were just talking offline about how I've been on a book tour. And, and while I, that, that the book tour sounds like a great idea, but it also was a, a good excuse for me to get out and see my own country and go to cities and places right here in, in the United States that I maybe only had seen the airport or driven through on the interstate. But now I would be able to come into my own country and connect with people. And I, you know, how could I, for me, that's the most happy thing I do is meeting people, connecting, sharing food, good food. You know, I had my motorcycle with me. I had a bunch of books, you know, I'm in riding around in a van, uh, but the motorcycle's in the back of the van with the books. And this to me, you know, is a whole nother dream of mine is to get out there now and share this, share this great experience. Carl, we often talk on this show about uh, the definition of adventure. As a matter of fact, we did an episode on it, and and it created all kinds of response from it. And it's quite interesting because everyone has a different view of what they consider to be adventure. So let me ask you, what is adventure to you, and is adversity and time required for it? I don't think adversity nor time is required for adventure. What to me truly adventure is, is stepping outside your comfort zone and doing something that maybe you've never done or that you've been afraid to do. There is a little bit of, of breaking through that boundary of fear that becomes adventure. And the other thing is not necessarily having a plan. And adventure is when you're going a bit into the unknown. And that is often enough of outside the comfort zone for most people. Um, you know, I, I, I know friends who, you know, have a hard time going on a trip unless they really have their airline, you know, to and back set their uh, hotel reservations, even tours set up, whatever it happens to be. But adventure is when you don't have anything planned and you're going in for the experience rather than to preconceived notion or some expectation. And to me, that is what defines adventure. And that doesn't mean you have to hop on a motorcycle and ride around the world. I mean, you know, I, I, an adventure could be people get, caught in their day-to-day routines they get into habits and they'll go the same route to work every day take the same road stop at the same coffee shop if that's part of it or whatever it happens to be go to the same dry cleaner da 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 whatever you're doing every day and i i think you could just you know if you just want to have a little change in your life and a little bit of adventure is do something different that day take a different route go into a uh different coffee shop or you know where you're getting your breakfast or something like this and and just mix it up that's a the simplest and easiest way to bring adventure into uh one's life without uh getting drastic but you know there's a lot of ways you can bring adventure uh, but it is it is going somewhere different and not having a plan the journey, your solo adventure around the world, um, I think it was uh, 62,000 miles, 35 countries, five continents, all on your BMW F650 GS. Give us a, a rough overview of what the trip was and what was involved. So it, it's, you know, initially I, I knew I wanted to do what many adventure motorcyclists like to do and have a dream and 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 do this, and that is go to the, you know, top of the world in the Arctic Ocean, um, you know, the uh, uh, dead horse up the Dalton Highway. And I also wanted to go as far to to go as far south as you could go. So essentially go to the ends of the world, 
the top and the bottom. So that was that was key in a terms of we, you know, that was a plan. I didn't exactly know when and how and where I was going to go to do that, but but I was a little bit methodical at the beginning, knowing that uh, I'm going to be spending a long time on this BMW. So by going to Dead Horse and going up through the Western states, through Western Canada, BC, into the Yukon, and up into Alaska. I knew that I'd eventually have to be coming back through the United States. So if I really had to adjust my kit, you know, work on the bike, unpack, change something, maybe get some different gear because it wasn't working out, I would have that opportunity. So in a sense, that beginning of the journey, Jim, was a recce. You know, it was uh, what they call reconnaissance, like in rally, when rally racing, you always go on a recce before the race. So you get a chance to see the road, you know what you're going to be up against. And uh, for me, that's was the beginning. But then once I crossed into Mexico, after doing all of the northern uh, North America and, and I crossed into the border of Mexico, Mexico, I knew there was no turning back. And it's at that point, I think, you know, we come back to that adventure question you asked is where the adventure really, uh, really started to become for me because I had no idea uh, of what I was getting into. And uh, while I'd been to Mexico and even ridden my motorcycle in Mexico and both the mainland and in Baja, it still was, wow, I'm doing this now. I can't believe this. I am really doing this. I've been talking about it for two years. I've been planning it two years. And I'm in Mexico. And I'm looking around, there's nobody else with me, and I, I'm doing this. And then that was just a thrill, and at the same point, a little bit scary. You mentioned comfort zone earlier, and in your book, you even mentioned that when you went down and crossed into Mexico, it was you left your roadside assistance behind and those sorts of things, and things that were available to you by the simple call of a cell phone. That's really when you sort of step out into the unknown, isn't it? Yes, it's exactly. It's like you, you can't call anyone. Nobody's going to come. You know, you, 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 you know, they say, oh, FedEx is everywhere. Well, well, trust me, I've tried. FedEx is not everywhere. There's no such thing as getting something overnight in, in most of the world, um, other than the big cities, say. But even then, it's not going to come overnight. So you don't, there are all of those things that we hold on to here and we have our expectations of uh, go away. And the ability to um, to find you know, there's a culture in terms of uh, you know motor vehicle repair and and frankly in home appliances and any mechanical repair in in North America that once you cross the border and go south goes away and that is to just uh, to remove R and R remove and replace so you know it's fine you break something just take it off and put a new one on well once you're south you know you can't find parts for that BMW. Um, you know, even in the major cities where there might be a BMW motorcycle dealer, chances are the culture there is a lot different. They don't inventory parts. It's just not something that that's part of the thing. You you have to order it, and it has to come from either Germany or probably uh, you know a distribution center um, in the United States or another major um, another major city where BMW has one. So those kinds of things are um, you know totally not there for you healthcare think about that you know what if you do um hurt yourself uh you don't have the access to either urgent care centers and you and where do you go how do you even handle healthcare outside your country so there's a lot of that that unknown that really starts to be a total new experience and one of where problem solving has become one of the most important things you learn and exercise uh, uh, the deeper you go into your journey 
The Western world, we're so used to having things happen immediately and being sort of in control all the time. And yet uh, most of the world goes on this thing of where you just wait. You know, we'll say, well, what if you what if you have a breakdown and you need a part? Well, uh, they will respond. You have to wait. And that's something that you learn. I mean, you mentioned problem solving there. And this is something that you hear is a sort of a connection through different travelers, especially by motorcycle, that it's a real exercise every, every time you have a problem in problem solving because things don't work like they do here where so smoothly you just pick up the phone. Is that a skill that you developed once you got on the road or is, does that sort of come as your, you know, an inherent part of who you are and, and how you've lived? For me, when it comes to figuring things out, solving problems, I think it's inherent to who I am. And actually it's one of those things I, I really enjoy. In fact, uh, you know, much to the chagrin of friends and, and, uh, and family, sometimes it's a little obsessive for me because I can't let go until I fix this, until I figure it out. And, um, and yeah, so that's in my, you know, in my blood, in my character, you know, is, is uh, solving problems many times. And I traveled with different people throughout my three-year journey. If it came to a, a situation where we, we, you know, the, the answer wasn't right in front of us, some people panic, you know, they can't really accept that, you know, they're going to dwell on it, focus, the blood pressure rises, the attitude changes. But for me, it's like, okay, this is actually now an opportunity to learn and to frankly deal with local culture and local customs and whether it's bureaucracy, whether it's getting a visa, whether it's fixing your motorcycle, whether it's, uh, you know, you've taking a wrong road and you're way out of your, uh, uh, your maybe supposedly where you thought you were going. And it's like, you know, instead of panicking, sit down and saying, okay, how can I solve this problem? How can I turn this problem into an opportunity? And I think that's part of you know, who I am. And, and I think that's one of the biggest rewards of traveling without a plan, without a, a thing is, is, you know, there's going to be problems and you have to stop and solve that. That's when you really start connecting with people and, um, and having fun. The bike you chose was the BMW F650GS, as I mentioned before. Yours was a single-cylinder version, I believe, when I, I think it was the first year they had fuel injection for it. Why did you choose that bike, and how did you equip it for the trip? So I had a, a while I was planning this trip, I had a, um, a 2001 F650, which actually the 01 was the first year of the fuel injection. Mine was an 05 um, that I eventually traded in or actually sold and bought a new one. But but I had the traditional, not the Dakar version. So I had a 2001 F650 single cylinder and also single spark. So it was only one spark plug in there. Um, and as I started doing the research, more and more I, I thought I'm gonna need a longer throw suspension. And frankly, I really want that 21 inch front wheel because it's going to make the ride a little bit smoother, um, especially on those rough roads. So I sold that 01 F650 and then bought a 2005 Dakar, still single cylinder, but that was the first year that they had the dual twin spark, they actually called it. There was a, a tendency for the single spark models, some of them, to kind of bog down a bit. You know, there was a, uh, I don't know if, uh, whether it was a spark re retarding problem or uh it would you know there's a um 
you know, not being able to uh, burn all the fuel in the cylinder. And when, uh, when there was excess fuel in there and the next stroke comes around, it tend to be a little sluggish at the low RPMs and kind of, uh, you know, the RPMs would fluctuate. So BMW kind of figured that out, uh, made the fuel injection better in that 05 model with the twin spark. And so that with the beefier suspension, because uh, I was definitely going to be loading that bike up and the, and the front wheel, uh, that's why I want to, why, why I chose that bike. Now, a lot of people say, well, why didn't you go with the 1200 adventure, which was, um, you know, or 1200 anyway, the GS 1200. And, uh, it's pretty, pretty simple answer because it's too damn big. I mean, it's a beautiful motorcycle and frankly, it probably would have been nice for those long days in British Columbia. <laughs> but once you get to, uh, outside the u.s and outside long stretches of uh of pavement or really good well-groomed um gravel or dirt roads you know you need a lighter bike you know in in sudan where it was at the time all sand i i needed to uh yeah, I dropped that bike so many times. I can't even imagine. I, I and it was difficult for me to pick up by myself. I couldn't imagine a twelve hundred, and um, and you know you just don't need that much horsepower. Um, but if you're using your your bike only ten percent on off road and and it's just like a fire road or a little gravel road, I mean the twelve hundred's great because I will tell you above seventy miles an hour. You know that F six fifty is a vibrating. You know I mean you give Harley a run for the money for its vibration, but uh, I'm not going that fast. You know, the average speed probably on my journey is 45, 50 maybe. You equipped your bike with uh, aluminum panniers in the back. Um, was that your total luggage, all just in the panniers? Not exactly. What I did is I had the two Jesse bags, the aluminum panniers in the back, and then I had these Ortley bags, uh, like a mini, you know, medium-sized duffel bag, waterproof. And on, to on top of each of the Jesse bags, I strapped those um, those duffel bags. And I and this was very strategic. And people always like, oh, you know, that I had a lot of extra room in the aluminum panniers, and I could have crammed more stuff in there. But the aluminum panniers are obviously more durable, and they're lockable. The duffel bags are not. And the reason I chose the duffel bags is very strategic. Uh, and one of the bags was essentially my overnight bag. It had my clothes, my toiletries, um, and that's about it. And in the other one was my camping kit. You know, I had everything except the tent, but it had all the various accoutrements for, you know, if I was going to set up camp with my stove and all that uh, camping gear so that at least when I was, you know, if I had looked at those as my, uh, really quick. So if I'm stopping for the night, I don't have to go dig out and pull out a bunch of separate little, you know, sacks or bags of, uh, of things. I could just go ahead and grab the one duffel, lock the bags, and then I would cover my motorcycle overnight with a very lightweight, almost, you know, parachute material cover black so that people really didn't know what was under it. Um, and I always made sure I had a secure place. So, so that's what I did is I had the two panniers, I had the duffel bag, and then in the front, I had the arrow stitch, uh, tank panniers, which I kept a uh, spare fuel bottles in each of those. And, uh, a, a few extra, uh, you know, I had, I, that's where I stored some of the, you know, maybe I'm going to need like some extra, uh, tie downs and, uh, a siphon hose in case I, you know, needed to get fuel and different things. And even just, uh, a very coarse set of tools, 
um, you know, a screwdriver and adjustable wrench kind of thing. Um, I'm trying to think what else was up in a flashlight. So up in that front tank panniers, they weren't overly loaded, but but I had access to certain things uh, there as well. And that was the kit. Yeah, I run those as well on my bike. It's quite nice to spread the weight out too, isn't it? You get a little bit of weight up front rather than having everything on the back. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I just remember we were talking about doing the reconnaissance tour, heading up north to into Canada and into Alaska. And I realized I had, you know, even though I tried, my, my load was a little misadjusted. I was a little front, I was a little light in the front. So I, I worked to even out that, that load to, to make it. And that, that's, you know, it's what you can only do is just continue to tweak your kit. But they are great. I love those front companions. Absolutely. Did you find you took too much to begin with, or were you well-packed right from the start? Oh, no. You know, I <laughs> absolutely had way too much stuff uh, at the beginning. And I got rid of a lot of it as I passed through Southern California again after doing the, uh, you know, the Arctic Ocean part of the trip. But even then, I found myself uh, sending some stuff back. I'm like, I'm just not using it. Yeah, you know, if you don't touch something... Unless it's a emergency supply or a spare, if you don't touch something in two weeks, chances are you're never going to use it. So get rid of it. Your route began, as you just mentioned, heading north uh, up through Canada into Alaska. Tell us about that stretch. You know that the you know the Alcan or the you know the Alaskan Canadian Highway. There's uh, so many um, names for that. And I talk about that that road in in my book because it's got a great history and it's actually another history of collaboration between the Canadians and the Americans and uh, you know how it was built to make a access road for uh, during World War II uh, just in case the Japanese decided to uh, try to come into North America through Alaska and although the the great pictures of the early days of that road uh today it's 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 wonderful it's a great it's a paved road you know the most dangerous parts of it i think are when they're doing construction they've you know they've pulled the pavement out and you're you're dealing with uh, marble gravel that is forming the bed for the for the new pavement um you know it isn't until you actually get uh you know into the yukon i guess and into alaska that you start getting the dirt roads now there is the cassia which i you know we we, we talk i i knew about that road but not a lot and in in the end i kind of regret i didn't take that route but i gotta tell you though british columbia i i have such it's the, just the most amazing scenery and such you know, even though it's a beautiful road and des and um, you know it's going through these places, and it's used especially during the summertime. You know, there's a lot of people that like to travel the Alaskan Highway. I found just I could stop that motorcycle and feel like I'm the only person out there. Buffalo crossing the road. You know, the bighorn sheep. Uh, there's there's places you can stop along the way and go into these thermal baths. Um, the weather changes, you know, just drastically. And then, you know, you get poured on and then all of a sudden it's this great sun. And then of course, for, you know, us in the Southern part of the United States, having those long days, particularly in July and August, I, I found myself traveling on that, um, uh, on the Alcan North, um, 
and and looking at the clock and it's realizing, oh my God, it's almost midnight. And it, yet it, it seemed like it was like five o'clock, like just getting to be dusk. So you get these really great long riding days because their distances are so far apart. Um, and the other thing you find on that road is because it's traveled, and this is all over the world, but if you did have a problem, a breakdown, um, there will be somebody coming along and they will take care of you and they will interrupt their journey to help you make sure you get back on yours. You know, so, so these, the kindness of strangers goes all the way, um, in that I, I, I got to tell you that, uh, I long to do it. In fact, I almost, uh, was supposed to last year, but, um, this whole book, uh, project took a lot longer than I thought. So I didn't get, uh, a chance, but my plan was last summer to, to go to Alaska again and go through British Columbia and actually go on the Cassia, um, and, and do that. So that's going to have to wait maybe next year. The book you wrote, well, I, I can't, I can't even say wrote, it's really produced because you've done the whole thing. You've written it and, and, uh, and went through the whole process of self-publishing this book. Um, it's called Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine and Connection. And it's a massive book. I mean, this is this is a coffee table book that is, I don't know how many pages it is, but it's quite a thick book. And it's full color throughout, as we talked about earlier. It's just a, an absolutely gorgeous book. When you open it up and you look at it, you can tell that the layout is incredible. People are definitely going to get their money's worth with this. This is not a, a little paperback that you're buying. But the book is set up with a story about each country that you went into and then followed by a recipe. So when you were traveling, are you, are you traveling to find food? <laughs> is this your small fixation of just trying to find local food that really knocks you off your feet? Or is this just something that you fall into once you get to a place? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I got to be honest. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, I found every day of my journey. There were two things I needed to do when I finally settled down after a long day of motorcycling. And that is, where am I going to? Three things. Where am I going to park my motorcycle for the night? That's the most important. Number two, where am I going to put my head down? And number three, where am I going to eat? Because, you know, we've got to fuel ourselves. And it got to be the point of those three things happening. You know, if I, I would stay, obviously, in some places for many days, so I wouldn't have to have those first two decisions uh, to deal with. But it got to be quite a bit of a chore, and I call I got decision fatigue from having to do this. And while I liked the idea of finding great food, I never in my mind's eye thought I would be writing about food a few years later and putting together a book like Forks. I love food. I'm a, I'm a foodie. I love good wine. I like to experience and taste different flavors, especially different cultures. And certainly I like to cook as well. But no, no, food was not part of it. Although when I got to Brazil and I was in Bahia near Salvador, I had this dish recommended by the guy that owned the little hostel I stayed at. And he took me out late night after I'd been drenched in rain and like one of those long days where you're supposed to get somewhere in five hours but because it's raining and you have to go a lot slower it takes you eight mm -hmm. and you're riding in the dark and it's just so dangerous because you can't see anything you know they don't repaint their roads and have those great little uh 
white lines on the on the side of the edge lines there. So he he takes me to this place because he he obviously saw that I was just exhausted and hungry, and I had this dish called a mokeka, and it's a fish stew with herbs with. Uh, you know, parsley, cilantro, tomato, onion, and great fresh fish just caught that day. And it's used with coconut milk, which comes from the coconut lined palm trees of the Bahia province, which is very, very tropical. And that also uses this dende palm oil, also from these palm trees. And the combination of these flavors is just so fresh and fulfilling. And I, I got found myself in a rut a little bit as I traveled north through Brazil, because I kept ordering the same dish, because I just <laughs> loved it so much. And <laughs> so finally, when I, I realized I liked this thing so much, I said, I'm going to want to probably make this someday. So I asked one of the little, you know, little cafe restaurant places that I ordered it at for the recipe. And that's the first and the only recipe that I collected on the road. Fast forward to three years later, I'm home, invite some friends of mine over for dinner, and I decide that I'm going to cook a uh, the mokeka. I had the recipe. I'm going to cook it. I also was going to prepare a salad that I remembered having when I traveled through Syria. It's nice to have the cooked, you know, dish with the with the fish, but it's also nice to have the fresh vegetables uncooked as a two two parts of the the meal. You know, you have your salad and that nice dish. And at the uh, after a couple bottles of wine and into that meal, my friend Doug says to me, "Alan, you really need to put this recipe, these recipes, in your book." And at that point, the light went on, and I said, "My God, that's it." What originally was going to be a traditional travel memoir story of my adventure around the world, I said, well, you know, who wants to really read about me and my adventure? What was important to me as we talked at the beginning here is the people and the places. And I thought, no, this book needs to be not about me. It needs to be about the beautiful world, the beautiful people, and the beautiful food that I experienced on this journey. So I kind of flipped the book idea on its end, much to the chagrin of my publisher at the time who had, had agreed, tentatively agreed to publish what, what uh, they might have asked for in terms of like an eat, pray, love book for guys. And I decided, no, we need to put the photos in there and I need to do the food. It needs to be a full experiential or multi-sensory book. And um, I then spent a good part of my... Uh, time reaching back out to people I'd met all over the world where I'd had good food. And as a solo traveler, sometimes you get bored eating. If you're not having uh, dinner with friends who invited you into their home or something, you know, you're out at a restaurant or a cafe or a little bistro or a, you know, roadside stand alone. And how do I entertain myself? Well, I'm a photographer. So I took a lot of pictures of food, you know, just not necessarily that I'd ever show these to anyone. It was more like my visual journal of what I ate or what was interesting. So I went back through all those photographs and remembered what was kind of like the signature dish in each country. You know, if you were to visit that country blindly and went to a local eatery, you'd be hard pressed not to find that dish on the menu. And that's why each of those recipes in each country chapter is almost the signature dish of that country. So that's truly representative of the culture of what they eat there. And that's how Forks came together. And it became a, a passion and an obsession, if you will. It's it's 280 pages, just to, you know. And there are, there are some 70, uh, rather uh, 700 photographs 
because uh, you really need to see the world. And then there are 40 recipes, uh, one from each country, and some have a couple bonus ones, a couple cocktails as well. So you get to not only see the country, but you can taste the flavors of that country too. And that's the uh, kind of the genesis of where that idea came from. Yeah, the photographs are stunning too. You can just flip through the book and, and get a lot of the story just looking at the photographs. And then the, the food looks spectacular. As a matter of fact, when I was looking at the book, there's one thing that popped into my head. I was wondering, where do you take the photographs of all this food? Are you making these dishes at home and photographing them yourself? Well, um, definitely, yes, I, I did make all these recipes at home. But the food uh, photographs were, I, I, while I'm the photographer, I shot everything in that book except for those signature food dishes and I, I actually all of those were prepared in a in a photography studio by a, a food photographer so he has a full kitchen in there and we prepared the food with the help of a of a food stylist this is how these things get done and um, and prepared the recipes uh, at over it took it took two years to f- photograph all the recipes in that book hmm. because yeah it, and here's why you know you you know it takes a, a you can maybe shoot two or three recipes in a day. It, take, it, it takes a lot. And the other part of that is when you look into the recipes in forks and you look at those photographs, you could blink your eye and say, wow, that almost looks like it was taken in Peru or that was taken in Israel or Syria or Jordan. And that's because uh, I worked really hard to try to make this food be on a set as opposed to just being on what most photographers, if you look in your cookbook of your shelf of cookbooks if you have any a lot of times it's just a recipe is shot on white uh seamless as they call it in the photo it's just kind of a seamless background so there's no horizon line and uh usually with a very narrow focus point when the background kind of blurred out it's kind of a style in food photography and and it's also very quick and easier to shoot once you have the recipe made but i wanted this to have the rich texture the color and the feel for each of those countries and um so it became a, a chore for me i traveled from you know tijuana all the way up to santa barbara and north to trying to find different ethnic grocery stores restaurants and and getting um you know what i would call props for each of these things and dishes and things that would kind of look like what i remembered in each of those countries and you know some may say yes that's a little obsessive you did you need to do that does anybody notice if i didn't tell you this you probably wouldn't have even guessed but to me that's part of my you know commitment and passion in producing this book is to give it as much of an authentic and a bit of a raw feel so that it feels like the adventure that i had and the experiences i had connecting and it's not it's why it's not on glossy paper and it's not looking like these dishes were in fancy five-star restaurants or anything like that. This is really raw. I mean, look at particularly the Rwanda picture as these are street food and it's actually shot on a kind of a picnic table and you'll even see a, you know, a Coke can there and maybe some, you know, balled up napkins and things like that because uh, I really, you know, it's not always about making the food pretty. It certainly looks pretty. It looks delicious and you'll want to cook these and, and taste all these recipes. I would say that yes and no. No, you can't tell that all that work's put in the photo, but because the photos are so well done, the thing is so polished. I mean, really, when you when you open up the book, it is a really polished uh, product, but you had it all, it seems to me, and then you blew it. You did the trip, an incredible round the world trip on your motorcycle by yourself. You lined up a publisher, which is just amazing, who agreed to publish your book. 
book. And then you went and told the publisher you weren't going to produce what you said you'd produce. And then what happened? That was the, uh, that was the real part of stepping outside your comfort zone thing that I, I did is instead of putting together that memoir and travel, I, I revised my proposal and I tried to convince, and I spent probably a year trying to sell the publisher on doing forks the way I saw it and, and, and putting as much time as I could into even producing the first three or four chapters and, and incurring the expense of, shooting the food photography because i thought once i showed the publisher my vision the light would go off and they'd say oh well of course alan yeah we're going to do this <laughs> but in my case they said alan you're not a chef you don't own a restaurant you've got no real food background uh and in the publishing industry it's called a platform you have no platform of food so forget the food uh you can maybe put some recipe in line with the text if you want we'll give you that and the photography, it's too expensive um, because I, I, I'd taken this from being a traditional, you know, hand, you know, small book, uh, tr you know, book that you'd find. Uh, they call them trade, trade-sized books, into uh, being a more of a coffee table visual book with the narrative uh, travel stories in there. And uh, you know, I, 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 I felt like I'd failed, you know, I couldn't convince them. And I thought this is such a great idea. And I'd gotten so much invested in it. I, and I told so many people that, yeah, wait till you, this book is going to be like a cookbook and photo. And, and they coming back and saying, no, just, just write the travel story. I thought I cannot, number one, you know, I've told so many, I've, I created expectations, at least in my own mind, that people are expecting that Alan's doing this amazing, you know, book that's going to have food in it. So I decided to do it myself. I have a background in marketing and publishing, and I've been able to, you know, I've produced printed materials before, so I knew I could do it. I had some really great people in the business that helped me uh, make this, people I'd worked with in my past job, and I set out to do it. And I got all the way down the road to the point where I was just about ready to print it and I, I realized the printing of a book like that is very expensive and I thought well before I print this and you know get worry about having how many copies of books are going to be you know filling up all of my my bedroom my office the kitchen the garage you know right, will will people buy these I better see if people are really interested in this so I ran a Kickstarter you know a crowdfunding campaign um, to introduce the concept of the book, show the layout, show the photography, show that it was right to the point. I mean, I'm right at the finish line. All I need to do is print it. And I thought, why don't I try to raise the funds by pre-selling, pre, you know, getting pre-orders for the books using Kickstarter. And at that point, at least I'd get an idea of how many books might sell and if people really liked this idea. And I was blown away. I, um, raised double my goal in Kickstarter, which is something you have to do. If you don't raise your goal, you don't get any money. And, uh, and about a thousand books were sold before they were even printed. So I kind of look back at it now and say, you publishers, you crazy guys and girls, you could have, you know, this was right, you know, and, and, uh, and the book is, is, is doing well when people, I'm amazed, Jim, at how many people actually buy a book. If, you know, and if they buy it from my website or I get notes, I get a lot of email. It's fun to read people that are, uh, that, that have 
purchased the book and are inspired by it. But it blows me away how many people buy it and say, you know what? This is so beautiful. I got to buy another one and give it to this guy or this girl. I had one person who bought it as a gift they were going to give their father-in-law and ends up, she's like, I, I can't give it to my father-in-law. I, I'm keeping this. Send me another one and sign it to him. So, you know, <laughs> so she bought another one. So it, it is true. It's almost one of those things you have to put in your hands and see, and then you get it. It's like, oh, wow, this is really good because it's a it's great. You can kind of, you know, daydream and travel around the world looking at the pictures. You can read just a chapter at a time. It doesn't have doesn't read. It does read like a, you know, a, a traditional travelogue. It takes you through my journey, but you don't have to commit to reading it and from beginning to end, you could open up and say, I want to read about Namibia. Wow, I've always heard about Namibia. And you could read that little chapter, that little vignette, and you get a sense of Namibia. And and while it, it, it stands on its own as a story and it doesn't, you know, even though it is connected to the one before it and the one after, you don't need to have read those to get it. Well, and you also mentioned before that this is, you're in your second printing now, right? Yes, yes. The uh, the first printing sold out not long ago. So um, I, I actually did a little social media tweet and put out the picture when the first second printing copies came. So I am so humbled and happy that people love Forks and are buying it as a gift. To me, that's the best thing. It's like, great, you buy it for yourself. But when you think this is worthy enough to share to somebody and and share this experience that to me is the biggest reward of doing this book yeah it's incredible i mean i mean how many coffee table books end up even going to second printing uh, quite often that that never happens yeah yeah, yeah. When, when you're on the trip you know you know back to the trip itself what, what were the biggest challenges of the trip as you were going along you know the biggest challenges of the journey start with bureaucracy i think you know just knowing as you cross borders that you're not just walking across or landing at an airport and going through immigration and getting a passport stamped you've got to get your motorcycle through and what that requires is a you're basically importing a a motor vehicle into the country so you have to go through the process of a obtaining a temporary import permit and for those uh adventure riders listening and have done that, have done a trip to Central America or even South America. You know what I'm talking about. To me, that's the challenge. Once you get your head around that, you just have to know that when you get to your next country, you've got to get that process um, and not and not get beaten down by it because people can be looking for bribes. People might be uh, looking to try to handle the paperwork for you uh, because they because they want to make a little extra money uh there may be beggars at these borders and border towns are never the most um, fun but I, I i think that you know is a is a big part of it and a lot of people worry about that I, I never worried so much about it i always looked at it as entertainment for me you know it's like a you know, if I had the blind or the uh, hidden camera, it would make great uh, fodder for uh, reality television. It's just going through a border check. Um, so, but but that would be a a, a problem. And, and and other things, you know, related to the motorcycle is just, um, you know, while I I believe in the good in all people, um, temptation is temptation, and you know, you want to make sure that you have an eye on your motorcycle and nothing gets stolen or ripped off. And usually a big question people ask, well, were you ever in any danger? Did you ever fear for your life or did anybody try to rip you off? And I have, you know, the only time I ever got ripped off on my journey was uh, pickpocketed in the 
Buenos Aires subway. I wasn't even on my motorcycle and it was a crowded subway and pickpocketing happens to everybody, locals alike. Uh, so, but you know, I, I can't say that's never necessarily a problem that I had was making sure the bike was secure, but it was something that was always on my mind. And, you know, for the, for those of us that ride motorcycles, we know that, that riding a motorcycle requires 100% of our concentration on the road and our surroundings and, you know, add to it the fact you're in an unknown territory and there are other people that might, um, you know, want something from you. You've got to add that. So inherently at the end of a long day, it's, you're exhausted because of not the, so much the physical of maneuvering the motorcycle on, on maybe a bad road, but it's the mental, the, the, the emotional, you know, baggage that you've had just from, a long day of just having to be so concentrating. You may be going through the most amazing scenery, seeing the most historical sights, but when you're moving and you're riding, you can't be necessarily looking around. You've got to keep your eye on the road because they don't mark obstacles. They don't, you know, fence in and the big ranches all over the world animals. So you can go around a corner and there's a big friggin' bull in your way. Um, those kinds of things are paramount. And then of course I think there's weather. And if you're committed, you need to get to a place and you have to deal with weather. And as motorcyclists, we all deal as we know. I mean, uh, especially I think up uh, with you, Jim, in the north, you know, people are will ride 12 months a year and they know how to do it. They've got the heated gear, you know, they know how to um, dress accordingly. But when you're on a motorcycle, you got, you know, you, this is your house. This is your complete life support system and and you, you you know while i have layers of clothing and things like that you know all of a sudden temperature changes you've got to stop and do that and do that roadside sometimes you know it's not like you're preparing for the day and you're you know what the weather is going to be all all along we, when rain comes you know you got to stop put on your rain gear and um and those things and then i i think when you get more into the cultural and the experiential part of it outside just the typical traveling bureaucracy and weather, you've got language. And when, as a solo traveler, you know, I am forced to communicate with locals. And when you're on a motorcycle, as opposed to going to a new country and traveling by air, and then maybe going by bus and, and your destinations might be preset and you always find somebody speaking English, perhaps, you know, they, there are parts of the countryside that you're going to be going through where they may not have seen a foreigner ever before. And certainly they probably don't speak English. So how do you communicate? And, um, it's, it's, for me, it was just important to try to learn a little bit about, uh, each language and to speak uh, phrases in little. And, and by the time I finished, you know, I went through so many Latin, uh, Latin speak, you know, Spanish speaking countries. I, I had a, a great grasp of Spanish, especially as I got more deeper into South America. And it was great because I could have a real conversation with somebody in Spanish. And what was really the strangest thing and, and the biggest challenge all over again, because by the time I'm in Buenos Aires, I've been to the bottom of the world. I've been to Tierra del Fuego, Ushuaia. Now I'm heading into Brazil and I cross the border and all of a sudden, is what? Portuguese? So I felt like I went from being about a 10-year-old in terms of my ability to speak Spanish to an infant, you know, in just like a day. And it's like, Oh my God, I got to learn all over again. And, um, and then this of course happens in Africa 
uh, quite a bit. There's so many dialects of Swahili. There's, uh, you know, they speak French and Portuguese in various countries and then Arabic as you get north. Um, so learning a bit of the language, uh, I think, as well. You mentioned about the the border crossings being difficult. You know, it's a time that all travelers say the same thing, the border crossing. You know, a lot of people say they set aside a day for it. And that's the most difficult part of the journey. Yet once you get into the country, you find all these wonderful, receptive people. And it's interesting to consider the fact that really what you're dealing with is government at the border. That's where the problems arise when you get the governments touching up against each other. But once you're in the country, you're among people who basically have the same needs and desires pretty much the world over. Yeah, and isn't that the truth? I, I mean, people often ask me, "Well, Alan, where where are you going next?" And if you read the book, you'll you'll realize my journey came to an end not because uh, I had gone everywhere I wanted to go, but because I'd gotten I'd been three years on the road and frustrated because I could not get into Iran. And the reason I couldn't get into Iran is the government wouldn't let me into Iran because I have a U.S. passport, and the last thing they really want is a lone American on a motorcycle traveling around their country. But yet if you held a British passport and you, Jim, with a Canadian passport or a German passport, you could ride right through. And I met a Canadian, a German, and a Brit while I was jockeying around Syria, Jordan, and uh, even Egypt and in Turkey. Each of these folks had just been within the last 30 days in Iran, not necessarily on motorcycles. The Germans were on a motorcycle, but the others were just backpackers. But, but all three of them, I mean, these are just from different parts of the world, agreed without, you know, in different, different times that, that Iran was their favorite country. And the Germans had been to 86 countries on a motorcycle. They, they, had, they were on a um, you know, GS 1150 adventure. And they had been in Salat. It's easy to collect uh, countries over there, but they had been to uh, that many countries. And the Brit that I met, uh, he had been to over a hundred countries, you know, tr- backpacking. So this isn't just somebody just having like a whoa experience. And there's, I think, there's two things. I think the reality is that the Iranians, like every other country, the people that make up the population of that country are curious, interested, and want to learn and from you. And it is those governments that create the problems for travelers, whether they're motorcyclists or not. And I love your uh, analogy of the, the borders, the countries are bumping into each other, the governments rather, are bumping into each other, because that's exactly it. It is government minutia, bureaucratic minutia, that we have to deal with just to just to get through. And and. I know, you know, despite what we see in the news and what we read in the, you know, in the, in the papers and hear through whatever channels you're listening to uh, about Iran, they are the warmest, most open people to Americans or anyone else. Uh, I, I just, heard, you know, trying to think where this was. I was just, uh, I think I was listening to a radio interview with a, a woman from on NPR down here who had written a book about or had done a, maybe a movie or documentary and there was a, a point in there in a, in a film where it was shot in Iran and in the background people were dancing in the street and 
a lot of people who had seen this were a little bit bewildered because yeah, I, I live here in San Diego, California, and I've never seen anyone dancing in the street unless it's uh, like 1 a.m. down in the bar district and uh, you know people have been uh, <laughs> maybe over overserved. Um, but uh, you know these people were dancing. It's like holy, is that really Iran? That's that's the re- response she got from that. It's like well, you know, what do you think? They're all going to be huddled around, grumpy and angry with each other? Uh, no, they're they love to live too. And that's, it's so true. Governments are the problem, but the people are the beauty. You have a wonderful story about uh, sort of being a forced tourist in Colombia. Do you want to tell that story? I would love to. Sure. So Colombia, especially at this time is a, is a country notorious for um, kidnappings and uh, the United States State Department has travel advisories on their website that people usually check you know and at this time which is in 2005 or 6 the government was warning Americans not to travel to Colombia at all I had planned not to go to Colombia either but uh, I got to the bottom of Panama and realized what? who am I kidding I didn't sell everything I own and pack up everything else to travel the world simply to be safe. I figured the only way to realize and see the possibilities was to take chances and face fear and danger. So I went into Colombia. And there's a lot of Colombians want tourists. They're so happy, they, you know, to just share their country. They get kind of a bad rap a bit because people are afraid to go there. And it's, you know, in this case, Colombia has been ranked one of the most dangerous countries in the world over and over again. I think even today it may not be number one, but it certainly was number one or two when I went through there. And there are police checkpoints everywhere. At one point I come to a police checkpoint and there's three guys dressed in, you know, high-vis vests and, you know, clearly policemen and they – they warn me, as they warn anyone else just about to pass through this checkpoint, that the road ahead goes through the most dangerous part of Colombia. They tell me, don't stop, ride straight through. And it's a desolate jungle road that twists and turns. And frankly, with each bend of the road, you know, the jungle gets thicker and the cliffs get steeper, no side rails, and the mountains tall, tower even taller. I'm on this road for about two hours and I haven't seen anybody, not one car, not even a person walking on the side of the road, carrying firewood like you often do. And then I come around a corner and I see this waterfall and it's beautiful. It's about 300, maybe 400 feet, you know, hundred meters or so tumbling into the river winding below. At this point, you decide to stop. You decide to go against the advice you've had to become a tourist or, or do what a tourist does. Exactly. Exactly. I got to take a picture of that darn waterfall. And I stop. And before I know it, I am flanked by two guys dressed in uh, jungle fatigues. And each of them are carrying an AK-47. And I'm thinking, where the hell did they come from? I mean, I mean, it was I had I hadn't even and the real true true story here that that I, I won't get too much in the detail, but I had a problem with my kickstand uh, side stand on the bike. So before I even even can get off of the motorcycle, these guys are by my side. And I'm at this point freaking out because not only have I been warned, nobody knows I'm here because I changed my plan. So all the people following my blog, I hadn't had a chance to, you know, update and says, yeah, I'm going to Colombia after all because if you you know people say, oh no, I'm gonna be going to Ecuador. 
So I've got two guys, and I'm thinking that's that's it. They basically march in front of my bike and stand there holding their guns and staring at me. So I lift the visor open of my helmet so that they can see my eyes, and then so I can look into theirs. And, and I just kind of scramble, search, stutter through my limited Spanish vocabulary for words to describe, you know, this waterfall. When I just splurred out, oh, la cascada, que increíble. You know, I mean, I mean, overly animated. You know, trying to get them to turn around and look at the waterfall. And, uh, you know, I kind of think one of the guys has a hint of a smile. So I kind of, you know, and then, and then he asked me the questions that most travelers get, except he's using the point of his gun for punctuation and pointing it at me. Where are you from? Where are you going? And where'd you get the motorcycle? And I'm thinking, I can hardly breathe. My heart is beating so loud that I'm sure they can hear it. And then the other guy takes a step towards me. And with sarcasm or sincerity, you know, at this point, I'm too scared to even figure it out. He says in Spanish, so you like waterfalls, do you? No, and I'm like, oh, see, gusto, right? Your mind is probably racing you know, 100 miles an hour at this point. You're trying to translate from Spanish to English, and then you're trying to pick up on some inflection in his voice. Is, is he friendly, or is this guy going to march me off into the woods and kill me? Yeah, uh, and, 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 and right after that, he says, that we, there's another one in the jungle. It's a kilometer away. Follow us. And I'm thinking, right. Okay, is that an offer or an order? Because as you said, you know, I have no, I can't take, I don't get the intonation and the inflection in their voices, whether or not he's, you know, uh, you know, this is it. And he's waving his gun to the jungle. So we, 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 you know, I, I, I'm at this point, what do you do? You know, I mean, I, here I am in the most dangerous part of Colombia. I've been warned. Nobody knows I'm here. One side of me are two guys holding guns, ordering me into the jungle. And on the other side is my motorcycle. It's my ticket to escape, you know. But if I but if I try to go and run, you know, are they going to shoot? So I have to assess the situation and you know search deep inside me and figure what the heck am I going to do? And I look into each of their faces, searching for some sort, some sign, some comfort, or something. And I I have a little bit of a sense. I'm not sure, but I said, you know what? I don't think I have a choice, so I'm going into the jungle with these guys. Now, do you look back at this point at your bike and figure that's going to be the last time I see it? Oh, absolutely. I am sure that there's other guys that are going to be ransacking that motorcycle. And if I do happen to get it back, there'll be nothing on it or it'll be gone. And or I'll never come out. Yeah. I mean, these things are running through my mind like racing. And I've got my camera with me. I did, did grab my camera. And, you know, as we are marching through and there's no path by the way which makes me even more scared it's like no there's just no waterfall in here i mean if this was like a tourist destination a cool <laughs> waterfall you know there you'd, you'd have some people have worn a path right from the side of the road sure. so there's nothing so i i lift my camera and i take a picture of the guy ahead of me his you know the back with his gun and you know it's this dslr it's got a loud shutter he's startled by it turns around he starts waving his finger and has this sneer on his face and the other guy comes up and bumps me from behind with the butt of his gun and i'm thinking oh what an idiot you know i, I never take a picture of a guy with a gun you know especially in columbia anyway so i show him the camera and i explain to him you know here it is he wants to see the picture show him the picture and then he he takes the camera from me puts it around his neck and we continue marching 
And I'm thinking, okay, well, there goes the camera. Um, uh, I just got to have fun here. You know, I don't know what's going to go on. And uh, we march. It seems like a couple hours, but probably was barely an hour. And we come to a clearing. And in the middle of it is this pool of water, crystal clean. And then above it is a waterfall. And it's three-tiered waterfall, beautiful, beyond words. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, at least there is a waterfall here. And then, to my surprise, the guy with my camera puts his gun, shifts it with the strap behind his back. And he lifts it to his eye and he starts taking pictures. <laughs> and I'm thinking... <laughs> and he takes pictures of me, of his friend, and then he hands the camera to the other guy and asks him to take a picture of the two of us next to each other with the waterfall behind. And he does that in the picture. And the picture's in the book. You'll see it. Um, so at this point, I'm thinking, oh, you know, th there may be th – this. things are looking better here. So I don't know what gets into me, Jim. It's it's a really crazy thing I do at this point. But I turn to the guy next to me, looking at his gun, and I ask him, I says, uh, cool gun. Can I can I check it out? And then to my surprise, he takes the gun off of his shoulder and puts it into my hands, warns me that it's loaded and there's no safety. When I read that, I thought the only thing I can imagine that you're doing is you're testing the limits. You're 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 trying to see where am I? Am I just a entertainment like a cat playing with a mouse just before it kills it, or are they my friends? Is that what you're doing? Exactly. It's at that point I'm thinking, am I? I, I figured I have nothing to lose because if if I am left for, you know, the vultures and never to be found again or I'm going to be getting out of there. I, there, there really, there are no consequences that uh, I need to worry about at this point. So I figured, let's see. So he, he you know, with this gun in my hand and, and, and it's, it's, it's at that moment, Jim, I'm, 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 it really comes clear to me that moments ago he could have, you know, easily just killed me in a single shot. And it's at that moment I realize I'm safe because I could turn around and pop both of these guys. Although, you know, I would never even they'd never even think of that because I you know I don't own a gun I don't uh, I've shot guns but I it's that's not something I get a charge out of but I just kind of had this you know wanted to check this thing out and uh, they get a picture of me this one's not in the book but I when I do my speaking I tell the story and I I show this picture of me standing with this gun in my hands you know and my I'm in full regalia in my motorcycle shoot with a waterfall down behind me. And, um, and I looked down at the gun and this is something, and I, and I, I share this story often and it's cause it's, to me, it's the most important part of it and realizing he could have shot me. And then I'd look at my camera at the, in the hands of the other guys and realize that that camera probably cost me more than both these guys make in a year. And, you know, you got to figure the environment. There's a waterfall roaring into this pool you got that sound of the water just charging into there you got the jungle breeze shifting the trees there's all kinds of birds making such a racket and yet here we are three men you know laughing frankly and enjoying this uh beautiful scenery and it occurs to me that the that you know strangers moments ago all three of us we can come together and we can you know trade 
personal belongings, my camera for their gun, kind of. We can sense this universal feeling of beauty and nature, and we can share that gift, that powerful gift of human connection out here in the middle of nowhere, probably the most dangerous place in all of Colombia. And to me, that's the message is, wow, when you step outside your comfort zone, you take a chance, trust, listen to your gut, you get to see and realize those possibilities that I, I really wanted to in coming into Colombia. Alan, do you think that that situation could have turned out different if you had handled it differently? And I mean for the worse. I've rewound it so many times. And I'm difficult for me to, to wonder whether or not these guys had ulterior motives initially. And due to my candor or perhaps stupidity, naivety, think, my God, this guy is just happy, jovial, and cool in terms of my attitude that I think that the, the way I, the reason I came out of there with my camera and my motorcycle in place is because I was just happy and curious. I think if I said, you know, guys, nice to see you. I got to get going. You know, um, I'm looking to get to the next town. I got some friends from there waiting for me for dinner, you know, or whatever. Or I could have put up a resistance and um, been invisibly showed myself to be, you know, more frightened. You know, I tried to bring levity right from the beginning when I called out the waterfall. And I do, Jim, think that it could have turned out differently uh, had I had I not been uh, – who I am. Which brings me to the question, and I'll ask you, do you think it's safe out there to travel through all these places in the world and that your success, and I'm talking about safety, uh, your success in, in returning safely and getting through these things safely, is just a, um, it's just a matter of chance or do you think it's really safe? I do think it's safe. Uh, you know, if you, if you really were a statistician or a, numbers person there's percentage as you say of chance that there's always something can happen you know you you know your plane could crash your um you could get struck down with some terrible disease um you could get run over by a, a bus as the famous adage goes or you could get you know knocked off traveling those are all very remote possibilities each of them and once you get your head around that, you realize, yeah, but too often we get these stories. The only stories you hear of about travelers is, oh, did you hear that, that uh, about that surfer in Mexico? You know, they found him in parts and, you know, in pieces. You know, that's a true story. You know, I think he happened to be a, a, on a motorcycle. There, there is a story that was running around. And, but do you ever hear the stories about the, you know, 500 other people who rode their motorcycles through there safely? Not unless you're in our community. So too often I think we only hear the bad. We never hear the good. And one of the motivations behind putting forks in people's hands and on their tables is to say, look, look at these people I met. I mean, look what they've done. Look how people were friendly, happy, and helped me. Read my Tanzania story, you know, how I crashed and 
you know, mechanics fixed my motorcycle and didn't charge me for anything. And, uh, um, I mean, you just, just, the, they go on and on and it comes back to the thing I said at the beginning, where if you tend to, if you, if you enter and get on your motorcycle or get on a plane to travel fearful and thinking only what's bad, I, you I believe you draw that. You're a magnetic to your attitude. But if you're thinking about what's great and what's beautiful, you're going to see that. So there's a huge attitude. And you're and comes to why did I walk out of the jungle? Why do you have these experiences? So with with a, with a good attitude and certainly prudence, Jim, and I'm not suggesting, you know, it's all about smiling and doing that. But you have to be prudent. You have to listen to your gut. You know, your intuition is going to be smarter than any warning that you read or hear. And... Um, You'll know if you feel in danger, and you'll know to move on and avert that. So I think it is a safe world. I think people need to be open and uh, not afraid. And they definitely need to look well past socioeconomic differences, race, religion, way of living. We're all human. And what do we all do? We all share and eat food. And that's, again, kind of coming back to the ultimate connector, regardless of our backgrounds. You know, we all eat and we enjoy that meal whenever it is. And that's why I believe food is the ultimate connector to culture, to people, to each other. And uh, a big part of why I put that in the book, Recipes. I've said many times that humans are just inherently attracted to the um, anomalies in life, the, those rarities, you know, diamonds, or, or like you said, you know, people focus on accidents, and we tend to totally uh, overlook the things that are um, more common, which the common story is. And when it's what we try to show here on Adventure Rider Radio, the common story is incredibly successful travel stories, you know, with those rare little one-offs that seem to, you know, be picked up viral on, on the internet that are, um, those are the anomalies, those, those problems. And generally, people are going out and traveling and, and having a great time. So you've done this. You, you've produced an amazing book, a very successful book that has sold and is selling very well. Where do you go now? What do you do next? Are you still out there riding? Are you still going to look for the next adventure? Are you chasing food? Probably all of the above, Jim. I, I, I'm looking for the next adventure. I'm chasing food. I am um, enjoying sharing forks and promoting it and getting it into more hands. Um, I'm, as I said earlier, I've loved that. I've had a chance to explore, you know, the United States places I'd never been, you know, and, uh, I was, I was with my motorcycle, not on it, but sadly, since I really got deep into the project of putting this book together, my, my motorcycle has gathered more dust than miles or kilometers. But I think and believe now that uh, I'm, you know, running this uh, this uh, through the spring, still promoting the book, trying to share it and get as much visibility so people can see that the world's safe and that you can ride a, a motorcycle in the craziest places and that uh, and that there's great food to be shared. That I want to get back on that motorcycle and get through Iran and Pakistan and maybe into Nepal and a little bit of India uh, next summer. Or, you know, failure to actually secure the visa to get into Iran, because that would be my way through to Pakistan. Uh, I would love to 
explore the Baltics, uh, rather, you know, or the Eastern Europe, uh, Macedonia, Slovenia, Croatia, um, Moldova, um, you know, the Bulgaria, even more of Turkey, you know, so that, that corner of the world would be wonderful. And although I don't think I will do it at such length of time, three years was was a great run. I, I, I feel I've got more things to write, more photographs to share, and and that takes time. So I, I would hope to be able to go on another adventure, put together another book, whether it be as elaborate as this or not. I definitely have more writing to do, more exploring to do, and searching for more adventure. And I'm and even looking at the possibility of creating and producing a television show based on the adventure motorcycle, but, but we're surrounding again, food and people. So the motorcycle becomes a character as, as would I and anyone else who appears on this uh, show. So it wouldn't be about the motorcycle per se, but it would be more about how the motorcycle is the vehicle to connect again, along with food to people and culture and um, playing around with some ideas of that, which could alter my summer plans. But I, I think that there's a market for it. I think people on Adventure Rider Radio would love to see something like that. But I more importantly think that there's a broader audience that could be introduced not only to cultures and food, but also to motorcycle travel. And uh, it's kind of a dream of mine, and it's something I'm looking at. So we'll see where that takes us. Well, we'll certainly keep in touch with you to find out about that. The book is Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. And uh, you've got a, a beautiful website for this in keeping with the quality of the book, too. It's called ForksTheBook.com. And, of course, then there's your website, AlanCarl.com, where people can um, look up and see what you do because you also do speaking and, and other things there. Absolutely, yeah. Alan, thanks very much for coming on Adventure Rider Radio and sharing your story. And hopefully everybody's going to run out there and grab one of your books immediately after listening to this. Hey, thanks so much, Jim. This has been a great interview. I think we got into some some good stuff that I haven't had the opportunity to talk about. So thank you. I've been speaking with Alan Carl, who wrote the book Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. You can find out more about Carl and his book by visiting his website, ForksTheBook.com. And of course, that link to his website and his other websites will be in the show notes here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's hard to believe that it's the end of the year. I mean, we're only one podcast away from finishing up 2014. So if you're out there celebrating, season's greetings. If you're not, well, still season's greetings. Really, it's a great time of year to reflect on what's gone by and, and what might be ahead. And of course, we have New Year's coming up, which is a big celebration for many. But we'll have one more podcast before that, so don't go away. You know, and a lot of people use this time of year to get in the spirit of giving. And if you're in the spirit of giving, well, nothing would please us better at Adventure Rider Radio than having you go on over to our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on that donation button, and send us a little donation for the end of the year and help us kick off 2015 with a bang. And now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Unless, of course, you live in an area where there's lots of snow and ice. And if that's the case, here's what I want you to do. You gotta treat your bike right. 
It's cold out there. Bring your bike into the living room. Warm it up. Give it a coat of wax or something. Make it feel good for the season. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Season's greetings. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. And we are Two Wheeled Nomad, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Woohoo! <laughs> 